For the last several weeks, we have been looking through the Old Testament book, the Minor Prophet, uh, Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah during the divided kingdom stage. He was a prophet in Judah. And I won't get into the entire history of where we're at in the Bible with Habakkuk, but if you are interested in it, I do encourage you to go. You can either go on podcast or SoundCloud or Facebook or our website, and you can listen to the last two messages on Habakkuk to kind of get you caught up to what's going on in the nation of Israel, in the nation of Judah uh, during this time. But the quick rundown is this. Judah had been getting deeper and deeper into sin and wickedness and idolatry. And during this time, Habakkuk had been praying to God for revival. He'd been praying for God to send something, to to move in the heart of his people, to bring his nation back to God. And then through a series of events, Josiah becomes king over Judah. And Josiah is a good king. He's a king that loves God. He's a king that while he's restoring the temple and he's cleaning things out, he finds the books of the, of the Bible. He finds the word of God and he reads it with the high priest and he's heartbroken about the state of his nation. And so he calls the nation back to God. And there is an incredible national revival throughout the nation of Judah. Judah. Every person is getting back to God. Every sector is crying for God to, to, to move and crying for the need of God. And it's just, it's unprecedented. It's never been seen before. It's never been seen since. But the entire country calls out to God and gets back to God in an incredible revival. And this is Habakkuk's answer to prayer. He's been begging God to move. He's been begging God to work. And now God is moving. God is working. The country's coming back to God and Habakkuk is just he's ecstatic he's so happy to be living during this time during this great awakening of God and then Josiah dies he dies in battle and one of his sons is put up in position he takes power and his son is a wicked man and he destroys everything his father had done He allows the temple to become a place where instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping false idols. He brings the country back into idolatry and wickedness and sin. And Habakkuk is calling out to God, asking God, why are you allowing this? Why did you let this happen to us? Why why did you let us get to such a a great point? Why did you turn the nation around only to to take take it away from us again? He's confused, he's angry, he's frustrated that God is allowing this to happen, and he lets God know about it. So let's start reading Habakkuk chapter 1, starting verse number 2. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry? Uh, How long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth, for the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. That is Habakkuk's complaint to God. He's going to God saying, God, how long are you going to ignore me? How long are you going to let this happen? People are living wickedly. People are sinning. People are serving false gods. They're they're worshiping idols, God, and, and you don't care. Why 
Are you letting this happen? And God, in the next verses, he answers Habakkuk's complaint, starting in verse number 5. It says, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not be able, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land and possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses are also swifter than the leopards and are more uh, fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. And they shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the, as the east wind. And they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings. And the princes shall be scorned unto them. They shall deride every stronghold. For they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change. And he shall pass over and offend. Imputing this his power unto his God. So Habakkuk questions God, ask God, why, why are you allowing this wickedness? Why are you, you allowing this to happen? And God answers him, but not really in the way that Habakkuk wanted him to be answered. Habakkuk goes to God and says, why aren't you doing anything about this sin? Why aren't you doing anything about all of this injustice? Why, why aren't you doing anything about your people defaming your name? Why are you letting this go unchecked? God, why are you idle? And God says, oh, I'm not idle. I'm moving. I'm doing something. But it's not something that you're going to like. I'm sending the Chaldeans, this bitter, hasty, morally perverse nation to conquer you and pass judgment on Judah. Let me, let me put it into perspective for you so we can kind of understand exactly what Habakkuk is, te- what God is telling Habakkuk. In the last year, our nation has been uh, really overtaken by what they call the Me Too movement. And during this movement, hundreds and hundreds of women and men have bravely come forward and they've kind of reported about a lot of the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse that they have endured for decades. And it's, it's kind of pulled back the curtain of the wickedness and perverseness of our culture. And it's kind of revealed our sinful nature. And look, before we in the church start thinking that's just Hollywood, that's just politicians, that's just the world, these things have been coming forth in the church world as well. And not just the Catholic church. You know, we like to look at the Catholics, the Catholics molesting those children again. In, In good Baptist churches, men and women have come forward and talked about abuse that they have endured. And it's kind of revealed our sinful nature and our wicked nature. So imagine we go to God like Habakkuk did. We pray to God and say, God, how long are you going to allow this? How long are you going to allow wickedness and sinfulness and this perverseness to to kind of rule our world? Aren't you going to get involved? Aren't you going to do anything? Why are you idle, God? And God answers us and says, oh, I'm not idle. I'm working. Matter of fact, I've worked it out where Iran and North Korea are in the middle of talks. And they're coming over and they're going to destroy your nation. They're going to conquer your country. 
They're going to wipe out all of your political leaders and they are going to destroy the very country that you say you love so much. They are going to invade and conquer and destroy. Is that what you were expecting? And that's what Habakkuk is is getting the answer from God. He goes to God and says, God, why aren't you doing anything? And God says, oh, I'm doing something. But you're not going to like it. It's going to hurt. Now, next week, we're going to talk about how Habakkuk responds when God answers a prayer in a way that we don't really like. But see, when we, when we look at how God's answering Habakkuk, he's, he's not coming to Habakkuk and saying, Habakkuk, because this, this is what he's saying. He's not coming to Habakkuk and saying, Habakkuk, I understand it's bad. I understand there's a lot of wickedness. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send some people in and they're going to they're gonna deal with all these wicked people. They're going to judge the sinners. They're going to get rid of the people that don't love me, the people that are serving idols. I'm going to deal with them and it's going to be great. No, he says, Habakkuk, I'm coming in and I'm judging everybody. The people who are serving me and the people who are cursing me. The entire nation is going to be judged. That puts us at odds with our typical view and our culture's view about God. If you were to go out in the, the, the community of the day and maybe go to the mall and start asking people, and you asked 100 people, what is God? Or can you describe God to me? Now, unless you came across a, a, a severe a, 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 an atheist who's like, there is no God, or you came across some you know, weird little, oh, everything's God, my dog's God, I'm God, the force is God, everything's God. The most common response you're going to get, probably 8 out of 10 people are going to tell you God is love. And the Bible backs that up. Two times, John in the same book, and just a few verses from each other, twice, the Apostle John tells us God is love. Not God loves or God is loving, but God is love. It's his character. It's what he's known by. He is known by the fact that he loves. So how can a loving God come to a a child of his who is crying out for justice? who is crying out for for God to do something. How can a just God, a loving God, come to him and say, hey, I'm going to do something and it's going to hurt you as well. I'm going to judge everyone, and that includes you, Habakkuk. The problem is that most of us, we look at the Old Testament God and the New Testament God as two different characters. The New Testament God, he's a loving, friendly, helpful, hippie Jesus who walks on water, heals people, and just loves everybody. The Old Testament God, he's angry. He's vengeful. He's wrathful. He's a God who opens up the earth and swallows people straight into hell because they looked at it, they worshiped a golden calf. So we look at these two different, these two, these two different aspects of God and say, well, the Old Testament God's vengeful and angry. Man, aren't we glad we're in the New Testament loving hippie Jesus God? Man, we got it made. The fact is, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are the same God. And see, we don't think about that because, we, again, we look at Jesus in the gospel and say, oh, that's, that's the loving God. We look at, oh, that's the loving God. You ever read Revelation? Old Testament wrathful God comes back. Starts pouring out his wrath and judgment on the world. And so God has never changed. God has always and will always be a judging, a judgmental God. 
We don't like to think of a God of wrath. We don't like to think of, we, we want to think of him as this wrathless, loving God that's good to everyone. But the truth is, God is a judge. He always has been. He always will be. And there's no way to get around that. And the quickest way to make a secular person mad or make an evangelical person nervous is to talk about the judgment of God. It bothers us, and that's surprising because our culture loves justice. Our culture loves just judges. This past year, there were two cases that made nationwide attention, and the only reason they made nationwide attention was because of the leniency of the sentence of the criminals who committed the crimes. One of them was a, a teenage boy in Texas. He went out one night and his parents uh, allowed him to and they, he was a wealthy young boy and so his parents always took care of him and kind of spoiled him and he went out one night and got drunk. Started driving his, his new car around and he got in an accident and killed six people because of his drunk driving. Well, the case went to court and the judge said, well, because his parents uh, kind of spoiled him, he didn't deserve to be punished severely, so for killing six people he got probation. We didn't like that. People were furious about that. The other case was in, in California. It was on the Stanford University. There was a, a swim member, a member of the swim team, who went out one night and he raped a young girl on campus while she was passed out. Went to trial. He got three months. People were furious. They were so mad. In both these communities, they recalled the judges who passed those, those, those uh, sentences because they said, that's not a just verdict. That's not justice when you allow someone to kill six people and get off with probation. That's not justice when you allow someone to rape a girl and get off with three months in, in county jail. And so we hate it when justice isn't served. But we don't like to think of God judging, especially when we talk about God judging us. God can judge them. But God, don't judge me. Deal with their sin, God. Don't deal with my sin. See, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk, but I do know just through Scripture, Habakkuk was a sinner just like the rest of us. He wasn't blameless. And so he's coming to God saying, God, judge them. And God says, oh, I'm judging them, but I'm judging you too. And we don't like to think of the fact that God is going to judge our sin. When we talk about God being a judge, we get nervous. We get nervous about the idea of hell. We struggle with the truth that God would send our friends or our relatives or our neighbors there. Being just and having wrath, we think, man, how can he love us if he's going to judge us? But being just and, having, and being a judge and having wrath doesn't mean you don't love. As a matter of fact, if you love something, you will judge and you will have wrath towards whatever hurts it. And God loves us. And sin hurts us. So God hates sin. Don't get me wrong. God doesn't hate the sinner. You'll people get up and say, well, this, this group of people here, God hates that group of people. God does not hate people. God doesn't hate a sinner. God hates the sin that causes them to rebel against him, that causes them to be separated from them, that causes them to reject him and spend eternity in hell. So God, because he loves us, he hates sin, and because he loves us, he has to judge sin. 
It separates us from him. It destroys us. So he hates it and he, and he judges it. He hates the sin and judges the sin. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't care. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't judge or have wrath towards the sin that destroys us. If you say so, you love something and it gets abused, it gets tarnished, it gets stolen, it gets violated, and you don't do anything about it, then you don't love it. But God loves us, so God must judge. So Habakkuk, he comes to God and he asks, do you see this? Do you see what's going on? Are you going to do something? Are you going to get involved? There's so much wickedness and sin in the world, and you're allowing them to do that, God. Are you going to do anything? And God says, yes, I'm going to judge. But I'm going to judge everything. I'm going to judge all sin. So this morning, as we continue through the book of Habakkuk, I want to show one point, and then we're going to unpack it and spend some time looking at it through Scripture. So here's the, first, the only point we're looking at this morning. And this is what Habakkuk teaches us. And I know most of us here are, are professing Christians. As far as I know, all of us here are professing Christians. Maybe some people who, who aren't saved. But as Christians who are faithful to church, who come to church, we got to understand this truth as well. Because it's in the Bible. It's not just for them. It's for us. So here's the truth we need to understand that Habakkuk's teaching us. God is a just judge that will judge everyone. When Habakkuk called out to God, he wanted an answer. He wanted God to move. He wanted God to do something. But he didn't like the answer that he got. He asked God to get involved in the lives of those people who were sinning against him. And God said, hey, I'm going to get involved with them, but I'm also going to deal with you, Habakkuk. I'm also going to deal with your sin. I'm also going to deal with your rebellion. I'm also going to deal with, with what you have in your heart and your thoughts and your intents. And see, we don't like that. We think God judged those people, the world, the wickedness, the sinners. Deal with them. And God says, I'm going to deal with them. But he also has got to deal with us. We can't get to the point where we think, oh, God's only going to deal with them. God hates their sin. But hey, listen to this. God hates your sin just as much. And God tells Habakkuk he's going to get involved. That includes Habakkuk and the others that still followed God. See, we look at the world and Hollywood at the wickedness of the LBGT community and we cry, God, judge them, do something. And God is telling us through Habakkuk and through the rest of the Bible that those people aren't the only ones he's concerned about. He sees their sin, but he also sees ours. This truth that God is a just judge that will judge everyone is not popular, but we see it throughout Scripture. Look what the Bible says in Job chapter 28. It says, For he looketh to the end of the earth and seeth under the whole heaven. Psalm 69, 5, O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. There is no such thing as a secret. That's a myth. You can, you can hide your true feelings. You can hide what you really are from everyone in your life. From, from your wife, from your parents, from your kids, from us. You cannot hide it from God. There is no secret sin with God. We may not know what's going on in your life, but God does. God tells us, I see everything. One reason we as God's people are so comfortable in our sin 
is because we have lost respect for the fact that God sees everything. It's a lot harder to sit in front of your computer or sit in your phone and look at pornography when you understand God's right there. It's a lot harder to gossip about that lady or that person. It's a lot harder to have those feelings of jealousy and anger and hate towards people when you know God's right there with you and he knows everything you're thinking. But we're comfortable in our sin because we think, nobody knows. It's hidden. And God's telling us, no, it's not. Your sin's not hidden. It's seen by God. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. It says, lift up your eyes on high. And behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them out by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is, is strong in power, not one falleth. Here's what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying, hey, look up at the stars. It's God who calls them out. It's God who created them. It's God who places them. It's God who names them. It's God who tells them what temperature to burn, tells them where to stay. It's God's power and God's might that has done all these marvelous things. Then, in looking at God's power, he asks a question. He says, Why sayest thou, O Jacob? And why speakest thou, Israel? My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. He asks, he goes, knowing that God is all-powerful, that he created everything we can see, taste, touch, and hear, knowing that he, can keep, he keeps everything going, why do you think you can keep your sin hidden from him? God sees everything. There's nothing we can get away with. There's nothing that we can do that God is not aware of. Isaiah 47, 9. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thy enchantments. And in this time, there were some, some in Israel who were getting involved in witchcraft. And Isaiah continues, he goes, For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness, Thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thy heart, I am, and none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon me. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee. Thou shalt not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. We, we lie to ourselves, and we buy into the lie, the lie that leads us to walk in sin, the lie that leads us to live in rebellion to God, the lie that leads us to this destructive life is the lie God doesn't know and God doesn't care. God says, I see everything and I care about the sin that's in your life. Jeremiah 16, 17. For mine eyes are upon all their ways. They're not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. Verse after verse. After verse, after verse, tell us the same thing. God sees what we're really like. God sees our sin. Now look, we can, we can put on a good show here. 
We can put on a good face here. But God knows what we're really like. And look, I'm not just, I'm talking to myself too. God knows my heart. But all these verses, they're Old Testament verses, right? That's the old wrathful, judgmental God, right? We're the New Testament. What does Jesus have to say about these things? Look what Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, verse 21. And he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which should not be manifested. Neither was there anything kept secret, but it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing you can keep from me. I see all of it. Look what he says in Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when they were gathered together, an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch as they trode upon one another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now look, real quick, nothing destroys a church faster than people who pretend to be something that they're not. That's why since so for the last seven years, I've never tried to tell you, you know, you need to try to be like me. i got everything together. My life's perfect. I, I walk with God like, like Paul did, and I'm so holy and righteous. You need to follow. Oh, no, no. I'm here to tell you, hey, I am a mess. I am, I am, I am shocked that any of you come here every week to hear me. It, it blows my mind because I know what I'm like. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm wicked. I know I struggle. But the thing that destroys the church faster is when not just the pastor, but anybody puts on this big show that, hey, I got it all together. So look, no, you don't. I, I know, no, you don't. Every one of you, no, you don't. The good thing about me being a mess, you're all a mess too. You're, you're, just, you're just as bad as I am. Some of you may be worse. Although I find that hard to believe. But the biggest thing, the fast thing to destroy church is pretending to be something that we're not. When we say the right words, we dress the right way, we, we sing the right songs, we, we do the right things, but our heart is not right with God. Look at it, continue on through Luke. It says, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed under the housetop. See, this verse here is the antidote for self-righteousness. As long as we look at our external, we can boast. As long as we look at what everyone else sees from the outside, we can boast. You can read your Bible every single day. You can read it more than everyone else. You can read it through every single year. You can memorize scripture. You can be faithful to church. You can come here every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Every time we're doing something, you're here for the last 30 years. You're the most faithful member. You're the most, you're the most, the biggest tither. You can do everything right, look right, talk right, act right, and puff yourself up because your externals look awesome but your heart is wicked. That's why Jesus doesn't care about the external. He deals with the heart. Jesus says, don't worry about the external. Take care of your heart because he knows if he gets your heart, everything else takes care of itself. Everything else is exactly what it needs to be. Our war is against our motives. Our war is against our desires and our thoughts because they control our outside actions. 
Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Or verse 12. It says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Look, we usually stop there. We, we finish, oh, that's it. That's great right there. Here's what the Bible's saying. The Word of God discerns what's really going on in your mind and heart. But then it continues. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight or is not revealed in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God not only sees your actions, God sees your intentions. He sees your heart, and we will give an account to him for what we do in our heart, and there is no justifying our sin with God. There's no going to God and saying, God, I know I did that, but I've got a good reason. You can justify it to, to us all the time. I know I shouldn't have said it, but you know what? He started it. Oh, well, you know, that's okay. God, God says, there's no justifying with me, because I see what you're really like. I see your heart. There's no, well, I know I said that, looked at that, did that, but here's the reason why. Why does it matter with God? He says we will stand before him naked, bare. God sees everything. Every one of us will stand before God and be judged. Habakkuk called out wondering why God was allowing his children to live in sin. And God said, I'm not. He will judge. There's no hidden sin. There's no secret life. There's no hidden thought. There's no hidden motive with God. One more verse and we'll continue on. We'll get to judgment of God. Look at Revelation chapter 20. And I saw a great right throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We, even as evangelical Christians, we don't really like the idea of a literal burning hell that a just God will justly send people to because that's not very loving. God loved the whole world. Why is he allowing this to happen? But just because we don't like it or just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it isn't real because it is. And this truth can be scary because God sees all. God sees our hearts. And there's nothing we can do to fix that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's what, here's what God said his standard is. It says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end of the for grace that is to be brought unto you at, you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. So God says, look, you want to escape judgment? You have to be as holy as I am and that's impossible for us. We can't do that. So where do we find hope? We'll keep reading in verse 17. And if you call on the Father, 
who without respect of person judgeth that according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. See, the word redeemed there is a military term. It means to buy back from ransom. See, what God is telling us is we were held hostage to sin. We were held hostage to that old man, that flesh. We were held hostage to what God was going to judge, unable to live perfect, unable to live holy. And in our sin, in our wickedness, in our helplessness, Jesus came and rescued us. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he paid the ransom from our sin. Here's what that means. Jesus Christ on Calvary was judged for all of my sin. He took the judgment that was due to me. He took the judgment that was due to every single one of us. He paid the price for our ransom. He gave his life so I could stand blameless before God in the day of judgment. Am I guilty? Oh, yeah. I'm guilty and so are you. But I will be saved from judgment through his sacrifice, not because of me, but all because of him. So there's two groups this morning that this thought, this, this truth needs to affect. Habakkuk teaches us a necessary and scary truth. God sees our sin... God sees our wickedness, and he will judge. For the unsaved, that means we need to, you need to trust Christ as your Savior today. You need to accept his gift of salvation. You need to accept his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sin, as ransom for your sin. So take what he did on the cross and say, God, I accept that you took all the judgment for my sin and I accept you as my Savior. That's what you have to do if you're not saved this morning to avoid judgment. Don't mistake the patience of God as acceptance of your rebellion. God will judge all sin one day. For the believer, for maybe you're here like me and you've accepted Christ as your Savior. I know my sin's been judged. I stand before God as righteous as the Son of God. All my sins, my past sin, my present sin, and my future sin. It was all judged on Calvary. So that means for me, I get to live any way I want to live, right? Oh, no. God's still going to judge my sin, too. What that means for the believer is I need to live in the reality that God sees me and he will not let my sin go unjudged. Now look, I won't have to suffer hell for it, but God still punishes those, his children, who continue to live in sin. Now the good news is for both of us, for the saved and the unsaved, there's hope. God says in John, in 1 John, says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. See, the only sin that God judges is unconfessed sin. It's sin. We don't come to God and say, God, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you and you are right and holy and I've messed up. When we confess our sin, God forgives that sin. But when we say, 
There's no need to confess it because God doesn't see it. No one knows what I did in my, in my bedroom at night. No one knows what I said to that lady. No one knows the thoughts I had. No one knows how I truly am. I, no one is aware. God says, I know. And you can't get away with it. I know. And he will judge sin. For both groups, we can confess, we can repent, and we can get forgiveness this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.